Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. Today's episode marks number 100 since we launched this podcast in early January. I'm honored to be joined by Globe and Mail columnist Andrew Coyne, who was our first guest and remains one of our most popular. I'm grateful to speak to him today about some big picture topics, including liberalism, representative democracy, and his musical tastes. Andrew, thank you once again for joining us at Hub Dialogues. My pleasure, Sean. It's good to be with you. I want to start with some questions about your recent column regarding the relationship between elected and non-elected officials in our system of governance. You write, quote, it is an elementary principle of democracy that the people we elect to run things should not, in fact, run things. The basic idea here is that elected officials should set the overarching goals and objectives, and experts and careerists should carry out implementation. You even make the case that regular government departments should run more similar to crown corporations in this regard. Let me ask, how do you see elected officials holding arm's-length entities and their leadership accountable under this framework? Is it mainly through their boards of directors or appointment renewals or some other mechanism? How, in other words, do we ensure that it doesn't devolve into a tenocracy? Yeah, I think there's two points of entry, one at the front end and one at the back end. So the front end is the the way it works, the way it works, for example, with the Bank of Canada, uh, is you, you set a contract, you strike an agreement, and you set out the agreement and would certainly be incumbent upon the minister as the uh, as the elected official to strike a hard bargain to set high expectations to uh, have very detailed um, benchmarks of uh, performance of expectations in that regard and together with uh, one presumes uh, um, penalties and rewards depending on whether you meet or, or don't meet the benchmarks so it's similar you know these this question of accountability and of holding people to account in that regard crops up in any number of different situations it's not unique at all to uh, the relationship between the minister and the department or the crown corporation or what have you. So there's that sort of thing at the front end, and and, and that's important. And then, yeah, if they don't uh, meet the benchmarks and they don't meet the expectations, or if something goes wildly wrong, um, then there are back-end accountability mechanisms, and they would t- include, uh, you know, dismissal for cause and these kinds of things. Um, so it's it's a legitimate issue. I just don't think it's a terribly unusual issue. This is This is something that comes up in any uh, type of situations. There's always trade-offs. So the trade-off in the situation we have now, where ministers all too often uh, meddle in in matters that really aren't their affair, is we get very politicized decision making. We get roads and bridges being built to nowhere because they, they, they you know, there's pork barreling uh, rewards for it, et cetera. So there's always going to be, you know, benefits and costs to any system you choose. Um, but my hunch is that the that uh, that this type of arrangement is 
is a, is a better trade-off than what we're used to with, with ministers, uh, as I say. What was it? Uh, um, uh, in Kretchen's time, uh, one of his ministers referred to my crowns. The, the crown corporations were like his, his, his property. Uh, I don't think we ever want to go back there. A related issue, Andrew, to this conversation is the tendency on the part of governments to pass legislation using strict caucus discipline to effectively pull lawmaking powers out of the legislature and into cabinet. The worst example of this in, in recent years is the Harper government granting itself the ability to set the annual federal boring authority through governor and council. The Trudeau government rightly reversed this decision, though it has done similar things, including as part of its climate agenda. How should we think about this example and the broader problem in the context of your point about the relationship between elected and non-elected officials? How, in other words, do you reconcile your case for the so-called deep state with your consistent and principled defense of parliament? Isn't there something of a zero-sum relationship here? Well, two things. I guess, first of all, the terms of the contract are, are themselves going to be the types of things that that ministers are going to be held accountable. So, so either while they're being negotiated or afterwards, when if something goes wrong, ministers will quite rightly be, uh, you know, called to account or should be called to account to Parliament for um, the, the results. So, if they didn't strike a good deal, if they didn't foresee how their their approach might be gamed by unscrupulous executives or what have you, and there are examples that crop up from time to time of that kind of thing. Uh, then they should be called in the carpet for it. Um, the other thing, of course, is the only way you're going to bring in these kinds of reforms, or should, is by act of parliament. So I wouldn't want to see a government doing this by order of council. I, I'm not sure they could constitutionally, but but uh, but certainly, this is, you know, these kinds of reforms are the kinds of things that you'd want to have pretty pretty sweeping debate of the kind that we're having right now to look for any hidden pitfalls. So I'm not saying I've got you know this all worked out and all every I dotted and T crossed. It's just a general way of looking at it. But but absolutely, this should be by act of parliament and parliament should be uh, accountable. But, you know, once, you, once you've got clearer roles for ministers, then I think you also have more accountable ministers. When ministers have 59 different things that they're supposed to be accountable for, they wind up not being accountable for any of them. But if it's very clear that, they, that the cabinet is supposed to be a policy setting body, uh, uh, then policy becomes the focus of the concerns. Uh, and, and that's a, you know, that's the kind of thing that parliament is good at, right? Is, is frankly, is, is what, what are the broad terms by which we want to be governed? When it starts getting into, you didn't build a road through Cape Breton, uh, and my constituents are mad about, you know, it just, it just becomes, uh, it just becomes an absolute, uh, uh festival, festivus <laughs> airing of the grievances. Let's make the conversation a bit more concrete for our listeners. Pierre Polyev is committed to firing Tiff Macklem if he becomes prime minister on the grounds that the bank governor has failed to deliver on the Bank of Canada's inflation target. Uh, you and others have been critical uh, that Polyev's politicization of the Bank of Canada threatens its independence. I instinctively agree with you, but it leads to interesting questions about how to ensure that arm's length entities don't effectively go rogue. In your view, what, if any, accountability should there be for Macklem and the Bank of Canada? for rising inflation? Well, it's, it's a complicated historical situation. Under the current terms, the, the Minister of Finance has the power, if he so chooses, to issue a directive to the Bank of Canada to say, we want you to pursue a different policy than the one you're doing. So we don't actually have absolute ironclad legislated independence of the bank. What we have is precedent 
and and consequences that flow from Brexit. Because what's also part of the understanding is if the Bank of Canada governor doesn't agree with the directive, he or she resigns. And when a Bank of Canada governor resigns, uh, it is and is supposed to be a big deal. And in fact, it's such a big deal uh, that most governments wouldn't want to go near that. Um, Paul Yever doesn't actually have the power to fire the Bank of Canada per se, unless he wants to pass legislation saying that the, 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 the position shall be vacant, as I understand it. Uh, you know, you, there, unless it's dismissal for cause, but that's a much different thing. Uh, so, so it's a bit, he's a bit off base in that regard. But also it's, uh, um, there is no unique failing here of the Bank of Canada. Banks, central banks around the world have wrestled with this extraordinary and unique situation coming out of the pandemic, uh, where you had an initial supply shock uh, that metastasized and spread a bit and, and encountered, uh, um, I would say, I think central banks were too slow to withdraw the stimulus as they encountered this. So there's a lot of easy second guessing and Monday morning quarterbacking you can do about that. But the notion that Paul Yever puts out that they should simply not have bought government bonds in the depths of the uh, pandemic lockdown when the economy was basically shut down and where every government around the world was going to market in massive amounts at the same time, uh, if you're worried about where interest rates are, are at now, the interest rates would have absolutely gone through the moon in that situation. So I don't think the initial decision uh, to, to help to finance, again, decisions that central banks around the world made, either for the government to go into deficit in those extraordinary situations, and I think my credentials as both an inflation and a deficit hawk are in order, but I don't think it was wrong to go into a, into, into a deficit at that time, in that situation, and I don't think it was wrong in that situation for for the central banks to be to be engaged in quantitative easing. I think you can fault them to some extent for being too slow to withdraw it, as I say after this initial supply shock that they had nothing to do with uh, came into into play. Is that a firing offense? I don't think so. If, if so, then we've got to fire all the central bank governors around the world. Uh, it doesn't seem to me to be a legitimate exercise of authority. And I don't think, frankly, that I don't think it's about that. I think this is about he needs a, he wants a head on a pike. There's a vast um, conspiracy theory around central banks generally. And he has not been shy about tapping into all kinds of conspiracy theories, in the, including the World Economic Forum. So one of them is, and he's, he's not been shy about talking about this, is central banks want to bring in uh, central bank issue digital currencies so they can monitor everyone's movements and the police state of the new world order etc 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 so I, I frankly think part of this is tapping into this generalized uh, uh, fear and mistrust of central banks uh, as opposed to any legitimate concern about monetary policy because let's remember Poyev's guru when it comes to monetary policy is a guy on YouTube uh, who thinks central banking is a form of slavery. Uh, uh, so I don't frankly think he's done a lot of, of deep thinking about this. And you can see this, for example, when people say, uh, not just him, uh, history teaches us that uh, more money always means higher inflation. Uh, so it's this, you know, and, and history does teach us that in the long term when other things are equal. Uh, so the quantitative theory of money uh, yes, is a legitimate uh, part of the economic canon, but it's it's got all kinds of caveats built into it, having to do with the stability of the demand for money function, etc. Uh, so it's in fact not true that uh, great increases in the money supply always and everywhere lead to short-term increases in inflation. That's actually not true, demonstrably not true. Japan has been pumping the money supply for twenty years, and they were couldn't even get out of deflation. Uh, so uh, 
I'm pleased that there's somebody in elected office who's worried about inflation. That's good. You usually, usually politicians are, are, are too blase about inflation and want to gun the money supply, you know, come what may. But politicization of the bank is politicization of the bank. And even if he's doing it from a hard money perspective, uh, I, I just don't trust that it wouldn't turn into a soft money perspective if that also served as political interests. On a separate but related note, I'm curious what you think about Mark Carney's recent comments that policymakers shouldn't, quote, shelter from the storm, you make the weather. To what extent is that kind of policymaking hubris a threat to the governance model that you espouse in the column? In, in other words, Andrew, how much is your vision predicated on experts, including judges for that matter, having a degree of epistemological modesty and temperamental moderation? Well, I certainly favor that. Um, and there is a long and honorable tradition in, of conservatism uh, that is skeptical of or weaning uh, intellectual confidence of people having thinking they can plan an economy, for example. Uh, so skepticism of intellectual uh, hubris is absolutely in order. My worry, I hope this isn't off topic, but my worry is that where conservatism seems to have gone in recent times is just hostility to experts and knowledge and expertise, as if they're always, always wrong uh, and should be dismissed, not in spite of their expertise, but because of it. So uh, that's my sort of overarching point. To be frank with you, I'm not sure I, I quite understand uh, Carney's, uh, Carney's statement. Can, can you be more explicit about what context he was using and what he meant? He was he was talking about the idea that policymakers, you know, shouldn't basically kind of accept certain economic and, and, in, and in this particular case, in, environmental underlying facts um, that uh, they ought to have a higher level of ambition and, and and see a role for public policy to, in effect, engineer different economic or, or in this case, environmental outcomes. I think this comes under the category of things that it could be true in some certain circumstances and not in others. And judgment consists in knowing uh, which is which. It's like the old thing about, you know, do you trust your gut? Well, you, yeah, you should trust your gut sometimes. And then sometimes you shouldn't trust your gut. Uh, people have gotten into problems for not trusting their gut. Uh, and George Bush famously got into trouble for trusting his gut too much. Uh, so ultimately, in all these questions, we're condemned to judgment. Uh, this is something I've become more and more... Um, uh, interested in and, 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 and come to believe is we're always looking for bright line rules. And I come from a tradition of that. And I, and I don't want to dismiss it. Rules have a real um, role to play in making policy. Uh, but rules can only get us so far. Uh, and there's always going to be situations that call for us just to kind of exercise judgment and pattern recognition. And this is when the historical experience and these kinds of things come into play. So, uh, Yes, I could imagine there would be situations in which it would be folly simply to take the policy landscape that is given and, and just sort of inertly react to it and, 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 and where there's a role for uh, agency and for, for upsetting the apple cart and changing the, the landscape and, and reacting that way. Uh, um, but knowing when that situation is, uh, it, it, it is, would take a great deal of, of judgment. And, and caution, uh, and, and the precautionary principle perhaps, uh, would perhaps suggest, uh, not rushing into that assumption uh, without a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, of, of evidence to, to back you up. So, so yeah, I would certainly favor caution and favor uh, as a default position, not doing what that suggests. Uh, incidentally, Andrew, I'll come back to the subject of George Bush near the end of our conversation. But for now, I want to shift to the topic of liberalism, for which you are among the country's leading voices. Yet, notwithstanding your deep commitments to liberalism and pluralism, 
I've been struck that you've mostly stayed away from the rise of identity politics and so-called wokeism, uh, which in broad terms reflects a tendency to diminish the individual in favor of group definitions according to certain immutable characteristics, including race, gender, sexuality, etc. Do you agree that you've tended to stay away from those issues? And if so, why? I wouldn't put it quite as hard and fast as that. I have written about those issues, but you're probably right that I haven't written about them as much as a lot of other people have. It's a complicated question. There's a lot of things going on there. Uh, first of all, the whole issue uh, around identity politics is multifaceted. It is complicated. It involves a number of different issues simultaneously, some of which are valid concerns, some of which aren't. Uh, there's an enormous um, capacity, therefore, um, because of that and because it concerns people's identities, uh, which they're very uh, concerned about and it goes to the core of who they are, and there's a great capacity for misrepresentation and misunderstanding. I think quite rightly, you want to approach that carefully if you do. On top of that, there are, as I mentioned, a great number of other people writing about it. And anytime as a columnist, you approach any issue, you have to come to saying, well, what can I bring to the party? What can I actually add to this conversation that hasn't already been said? And there's a mixture of people writing about this. People who are writing about it, I think, very carefully and well and nuanced and, 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 and separating the valid concerns from the invalid. And I think an example of that would be Kathy Young, for example, uh, an American writer, um, um, who I think is, is very good at navigating between the excesses on either side. Uh, but there's a lot of other people who I don't necessarily need to mention who I think are writing about it very simplistically. And, 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 um, and which brings me to my next point, which is this is a genuine time for reflection and should be uh, that I think post Me Too and post George Floyd, uh, I think a lot of people uh, of my age, my background, uh, gender, et cetera, uh, uh, had a little bit of a wake up that, that maybe we hadn't, uh, fully understood how, how widespread and how, how debilitating, uh, these issues were of racism and sexism. Uh, and, and, and that doesn't mean you have to sign on to every proposed solution. Uh, I do think it means you have to listen pretty carefully and show the, show that you've listened carefully and that you understand, uh, um, fully. Uh, the concerns and the complaints that people are bringing before you weigh in with either dismissing them or saying, well, yeah, but uh, here, here's the better solution. So uh, frankly, it, it, for me personally, it's also been a bit, bit of a time of reflection on that, you know, trying to try not to just uh, shoot from the hip on this, but, but, uh, but listen carefully and, and try and figure out, as I say, what things do I think uh, come on, I should take on board and what things I don't. And, and uh, I, I'm not always convinced that conservatives are doing that. Um, some are, uh, but in some cases, it, they just come off, whether they intend or not, whether it's fair or not, they come off like they just haven't quite listened enough. Uh, um, and, and on a subject like this, I think you have, have to kind of earn, earn your, pay your dues, earn your, earn your standing uh, on such an emotional topic with, with, that is so personal to people. You, you kind of have to do your homework. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. The hub.ca. Now back to our program. 
on the subject of liberalism, one of my favorite columns of yours is from last July on the case for civic nationalism. How would you define civic nationalism in the Canadian context? And what aspects of Canadian civic identity would be sufficiently distinct and unifying so as to serve as a connective tissue of a shared sense of citizenship? Well, that's a very large question, but let me let me attempt it. First of all, I wouldn't necessarily define it myself. I think one of the aspects of civic nationalism, it has to be that it is something that has broad public volume, that it's, it's, it's based on, on shared understandings. It's not some uh, uh, novelist in Southern Ontario defining it for the, for the rest of the country. And, and a lot of identity-based nationalism, uh, of which Canadian nationalism was in historically a species, it was an attempt to kind of create a kind of an ersatz Canadian ethnicity, frankly. Uh, uh, there was a Canadian type. There were Canadian psyches. Uh, we, we were by nature uh, uh, inclined towards public enterprise, for example, was a, a broadly shared, shared theory um, among Canadian nationalists. Uh, and it, it, you know, it didn't work. Uh, and it was frankly not rooted in anything real. So civic nationalism, it seems to me, is is about... Um, what are the, what what are we trying to do together? Uh, what is it that what's the purpose of our nation state? What are the things that we stand for? What are we trying to achieve together? That seems to me is a very appropriate type of nationalism for a new world, polyethnic, uh, multilingual uh, um, uh, uh, country. It's not going to be about blood and soil, and even if that those that phrase didn't have all sorts of terrible connotations to it, it it, it just wouldn't work here. So to, to your second part of your question, I think it's more about what's unifying than what's distinct. Uh, it doesn't have to be distinct. The things that we decide are going to be part of our mission and our purpose are probably going to be uh, broadly shared with the other liberal democratic nations, particularly the United States. And that's okay. Uh, we, can be, we can strive to be the best exemplars of these shared universal ideals. We can try to be the most democratic country, the most committed to free speech country, the most committed to equality country. It doesn't matter if they're the, the same or not. Uh, what matters is, are they, are they ours in the sense that we believe in them? And I think there are certain ways, in my opinion, there are certain principles of citizenship that are more inclined to, to be unifying than others. I think the Charter of Rights is an inherently unifying document. We might have arguments about its particular application, but the, the basic insight that a nation of equal citizens, uh, and I think it's, I think all the polling data to me suggests it's, it's worked in that regard. Quebecers are among the most committed uh, people to the charter. Once you get past flags and, and extraneous issues and get to the, the actual core of it, um, Quebecers believe in the charter than any other uh, uh, Canadians. So I think, as I say, I don't think difference, uh, I think that was the, the, the classical Canadian nationalist thing. Let's, let's talk about how different we are from the Americans and, and we'll root our nationalism in that, which is a pretty arid thing to begin with. You know, well, let's just be different for different sake. And it, and it has all kinds of ways in which it's distorted our debates about various policies that we couldn't do X or Y, even if it was a good idea, because it might make us more like the Americans. You know, and I always used to say to people, if the Americans ever bring in public health care, I hope that doesn't mean we have to get rid of it. Uh, to show how different we are, you know. So, uh, so, so maybe I'll, I'll just close on this. On the Medicare example, is to, to illustrate the difference in the approaches. I don't want to have Medicare because it makes me Canadian. I want to be Canadian. I want to have this great national political experiment called Canada, so we can do things like Medicare. 
so that we can we we can we can make our contribution uh, to to international statecraft. So that we can you know we can project uh, as individuals we can project uh, uh, our view of the world more powerfully through this nation state than we could in, as as some splinter group of of you know a hundred different entities. So so that's that's broadly speaking what I mean by by Canadian civic nationalism. In the domain of global affairs and geopolitics, there's been something of a ratcheting back from the universalist ambitions of post-9-11 neoconservatives to the utilitarian calculations of the so-called realists. My reading of you is that while you concede the neoconservatives may have overreached in Iraq and Afghanistan, you're even more critical of the current moment's empty realism. What do the realists get wrong? And how should we think about the relationship between interests and values in foreign policy? Well, the realists, I think, first of all, uh, um, it's, it, it is a remarkably amoral uh, uh, position it, to be able to look at the Ukraine-Russia situation and just casually say, well, you know, what Ukrainians have to understand is X, Y, and Z is a very easy thing to do if you're not actually in Ukraine fighting for your life. Uh, it generally seems to devolve into a peculiarly um, narrow definition of national interest. Uh, it, it is remarkable how often that definition devolves into, well, let's not make a fuss if Russia demands X or Y. It, 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 it seems to be a, a rationalization for not actually standing up for yourself and standing up for your friends and starting, standing up for important principles. So, and, and it, it winds up assuming all kinds of fantastic things about what actually moves people and, and, and determines relations between states. So then the, the, to call it realism, I've always found to be a remarkable misnomer. It, it, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's so dry and arid as to be detached from anything real in my, in my opinion. Uh, so yes, uh, 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 you know, were the neoconservatives guilty of hubris in thinking they could install a democracy in countries uh, that had never had any experience of it? That's probably true. Uh, I will say um, we always need to say uh, from what historical vantage point are we observing this phenomenon? You know, the, the, the Chow and line line about, you know, what's the consequence of the French Revolution is too soon to tell. Uh, um, you know, 200 years from now, we may look back. We may look back and say, uh, um, Afghanistan and Iraq, the, the, the beginnings of their uh, um, uh, arrival as democratic nation states was was sown in the chaos and turmoil of these seemingly uh, failed experiments. I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not trying to claim that because who knows. But but I do think uh, while we're talking about the hubris, that we should be careful not of saying, well, whatever the observation we're making at this exact moment in time is going to be the how things are going to work out forever and ever. Uh, um, but that being said. Uh, yeah, we probably learned that, that, uh, we want to, we, you know, our, our abilities to, even with the best of intentions to put our stamp on the world, uh, our democratic stamp are, are more limited than we've thought. But if we're talking about, should we defend a democratic state, a country that already is a democracy from being invaded and, and annexed and extinguished by a, 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 a dictatorship run by a gangster? I just think it's obtuse to, 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 to be looking for excuses not to answer that question in the affirmative. To return to domestic issues, how do you think demographic-induced tightness in the labor market will affect our political economy? Do you anticipate that we'll see major investments in technology 
and a much needed boost to labor productivity? Well, this is the hopeful scenario. So, um, uh, you know, a lot of us have been concerned for a long time about the aging of the population. We're, we're, we're moving towards a society unlike anything we've ever seen. We're practically there where we're going to have 25% or more of the population over the age of 65 and larger and larger share of that over the age of 70 or 80 or 90 or 100. And, uh, you know, so first of all, all the costs that go with that in terms of healthcare, but secondly, that there's going to be relatively fewer people of what's traditionally concerned considered working age. Uh, and that therefore we're going to have real constraint on labor supply. And if not actual shortages, certainly um, um, slower growth, slower put growth in, in, in potential capacity. There have been several things that have been put forward that might help us out of that bind, uh, most of which won't. So higher immigration, I'm all in favor of, but that's, the numbers aren't going to, that's not going to cure anything. Uh, having people work longer, that's all for the good, but that's not going to cure it. The only thing that's going to cure it is going to be if we get much higher productivity growth. That's the only way we're going to be able to afford uh, to pay for all these old people in their healthcare. You know, the, the worry has been we've had very, very low productivity growth in Canada relative to other countries, and there's no sign as yet that it's really improving. But one of the things that might fill in the mix which that your question suggests is, you know, we've had the, what's really fueled growth for Canada in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years has not been productivity growth, needless to say. It's been a mixture of high commodity prices, at least fitfully, uh, and high uh, workforce growth, labor force growth. We had the fastest labor force growth, I believe, in any of the democracies over the last 50 years. Uh, so in crude terms, what that meant was when a company needed to expand, rather than adding more machinery or more plants and equipment, they just took on more workers. If there's no workers around, if there's a shortage of workers, it may be that this problem will be to some extent self-correcting, that uh, companies will, will start adding equipment and, and plants uh, rather than rather than taking on workers. Um, but I wouldn't want to bet the farm on it because I don't think that relative abundance of labor has been the only contributor to our poor productivity growth. But to the extent that that's been an issue, uh, it may somewhat uh, uh, fix itself from for the reasons that you state, that, that, that basically their companies are going to have to invest in machinery and equipment and are going to have to therefore raise uh, uh, productivity of their uh, of their workers. What about the prospects of remote work? The technologist Mark Andreessen is bullish that we're going to see a decoupling of where people live and work and that the consequences will be profound, including, but not limited to, a return of intergenerational living arrangements. What's your view, Andrew? Is remote work durable? Do you think it's overrated or underrated as an economic and social development? The, the shorter answer is I don't know, and neither does Mark Andreessen. I'm a little bit on the skeptical side of that, uh, maybe just uh, temperamentally, but you know, not so long ago, people were saying we're, we're not going to shake hands ever again. Uh, it doesn't seem to have been the case. People are shaking hands again. So I, I, there will probably be some long-term impact, but I'd be wary of, of, of being too uh, uh, hyperbolic about it. Uh, you know, people like to congregate in groups. They like to do for, so for social reasons. They like to do so for work reasons. My impression is there was a lot of early exclamations uh, in the, during the pandemic of, hey, this is actually more productive to have people at home. And my admittedly imprecise impression is there's been a lot of rethinking of that since and companies are desperate to get people back into the office. So propinquity, you know, the benefits of being able just to kind of lean over to someone and say, hey, I, you know, why, why don't we try it this way? Uh, it's hard to imagine that's, that's, that's going to just be completely uh, uh, for naught. 
and so therefore, you know, I, I think there, there will probably be, a, a, for the most part, a return to the office, but it will probably be more varied than that. And, and there'll probably be more flexibility built into it. And so it'll be somewhere in between. And, and to the extent that that, uh, you know, uh, uh, caters to people's needs for a better work-life balance, that's great. And to the extent it makes means they have to make offices more humane places to attract people back, that's also to the good. But but I I, I just doubt it will be quite as revolutionary as he's, as he's suggesting. But if he's right, then I'll have to eat crow. One of your answers from our previous conversation about your eclectic worldview generated a lot of reaction from Hub listeners. You called yourself, quote, a conservative, liberal, libertarian socialist. As someone with such a unique amalgam of political preferences and an equal opportunity critic of politicians of all stripes, are there any politicians in recent decades in Canada or elsewhere who, in your view, Andrew, broadly reflected your personal preferences? Well, I, I should preface this by saying I, I don't actually think my views are that idiosyncratic. I mean, if you look at most of my views, it would be absolute straight down the line, mainstream macroeconomic, microeconomic uh, thinking. It's just, it's just, I actually take it seriously, you know, that, that, that uh, you know, that, that, that things that are commonplaces in economics are oftentimes, or in the past, certainly were absolutely alien to the political world. Free trade, you know, I'm old enough to remember free trade used to be this exotic idea that only some crackpot would actually propose in quote unquote, the real world. Uh, uh, and yet, you know, here we are, it's, it's now a, a, a pretty much a mainstream gospel. So with all that being said, you know, I, I don't know if I have anybody that I, I could say right down the line, I, I, I think is, is the bee's knees, but you know, generally speaking, there were in the past certainly more conservative Democrats, like a Bill Bradley, for example, who I thought was pretty sensible and had an interesting, uh, you know, mix. And, and generally speaking, what I favor is a mixture of, of, of free markets and a redistribution of state. So, you know, you use the market for solving allocational problems and use the state for solving distributional problems. And don't try to mix the two together because that's when we get into trouble. When we try to solve distributional questions by messing around with prices and wages that aren't designed for that, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, a, a Bill Bradley on the Democrat side, a, a bleeding heart conservative, as he called him, like Jack Kemp, uh, was kind of in, in the zone. There were some very interesting people in the Thatcher government and, and the associated intellectual movements in the 80s. People tend to, tend to look at Thatcherism kind of one dimension, but it was actually quite an impressive intellectual movement. And there were strands within that of what were called distributionists who were very interested, and it came out in things like the sale of council houses. They were very interested in spreading capital ownership, which at the time was very narrowly held in, in Britain and probably is still not as widely held as in Canada. I'm not sure, but, but it was certainly a very a strong ambition of theirs is to, to get more people to own wealth, uh, which is not a traditionally, uh, associated with a, with a right of center, um, government. So there were people within that uh, group. And similarly, the people who kind of learned the lessons of Thatcherism on the center left, the, the social Democrats, uh, uh, David Owen, for example, uh, could be quite bracing. They, they were made no bones about it. they were they absolutely got it in terms of free markets and sound finance, but they had a more ambitious role for the, for the state in terms of social justice and these kinds of things, which, by the way, I'll just add is you know, people look at Scandinavia and they think of it as just, oh, it's just this cradle of socialism, et cetera. And certainly it has a much larger state than I'd be comfortable with. But it also has very low uh, corporate tax rates and is hyper committed to free trade and competitiveness because they're small countries that have to export for a living. Uh, and so they're actually, they actually have quite very 
competitive wealth generating societies, which is why they're able to afford these very, very expansive uh, uh, welfare states. Final question, Andrew. Uh, I asked about what I perceived as your eclectic political views. Uh, let me ask about uh, your eclectic tastes in music. Um, you use a platform to listen to music that seems to enable you to post the songs that you're listening to on Twitter. And I've noticed that you listen to a wide range of music, including many musicians and songs that I've never heard of. Where does your interest in music come from? And what's your most common and obscure recommendations for Hub listeners? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, uh, well, I don't know. I, I mean, I've always, I got into music actually relatively late because uh, I didn't like the music a lot of the music on the radio when I was a teenager, but I had older brothers and sisters who were very into all the bands in the sixties. So I had developed uh, from the cradle, I guess, a, a liking for sort of the sixties rock and sixties soul. Uh, and, and, and then there were all these bands that kind of came along in succeeding generations who were coming out of that same tradition. We're trying to recapture that kind of, of the sense of fun uh, and melody and danceability, et cetera. So, you know, the, the band's, and the groups I like, it, it generally has, you know, strong melody, you know, good beat, can dance to it, as they say. Uh, and, uh, boy, recommendations. Uh, 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 let me think. This doesn't really fit, but, but a, a group I find quite, quite hypnotic is called uh, The Clientele. All their songs sound the same, but they all sound great. It, it's, it's just kind of, a, it's kind of trippy, kind of hazy, uh, uh, but, but very melodic and, and, uh, and very easy to, to get lost in. Well, we'll take it. Um, Andrew Coyne, thank you so much for joining us for our first and now our 100th episode of Hub Dialogues. On behalf of listeners, um, thank you so much. Thanks, John. I had a great time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.